Thank you for tuning into the Hope When There Was None podcast. And here we share stories to educate you, to empower you and inspire. So thank you for listening and tuning in. Please do me a favor and share if you have a favorite episode, or maybe you think somebody else that needs a dose of positivity and to maybe break open some of the darkness, let there be light. So thank you again for all of your support and encouragement. I hope you enjoy this episode. And we are live. Oh, I like your shirt. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It's Melinda from Hope When There Was None. And I have a beautiful guest with me. This, oh my gosh, this rock star warrior is going to be sharing her story and what she's doing now. So Cheryl, I'm going to let you take it away. But before I do, I'm going to let everybody know I do have her links that'll be at the bottom here, but you can also find them in the comments. So Cheryl, go ahead and take it away, hon. So Cheryl, go ahead and take it away, hon. Well, first of all, good morning. Grace, peace, and blessings, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm not sure how much of my story you want, but normally when I speak, I tell people the beginning, the middle, and the end. And so basically, um, in childhood, you know, I was very spoiled, very kept, and didn't responsibility, didn't understand what love was didn't understand what loving myself was or knowing my worth. My mom's side of the family took very good care of me. I was the first granddaughter and grandchild. So I never wanted for anything and I never knew how to just be good to me. You know, I always looked out for everyone. I was the oldest and everything in the community or either my family, they would come to me. As I got older, uh, I started to work, I finished school, but I just never cared for myself. You know, people would pick on me and bully me because I was very pretty and I didn't understand why. And I was so broken inside um, because even though my mom gave me everything, I never got hugs. She never told me she loved me. And so I struggled with low self-esteem and persistent depression from teenage days. And I didn't know it because back then you couldn't diagnose, especially in the minority community. So I dealt with it. What I did was I always attracted men with money and whether they were verbally or emotionally abusive, they took care of me and they filled the void of a dad and a mom, if you will. My dad um, was in the service and then I didn't see him for a while. My stepfather raised me, but it was just very, very dysfunctional. My abuse began with me. I basically did whatever I had to do to have the image, the profile, the style, and wearing the mask because I was so hurt. I wanted my mom's love so bad. And because she was broken and bruised from her mom, you know, I didn't understand why she had a problem with me. My grandmother cherished the ground I walked on. I was her first granddaughter, so. The relationship that my mom wanted from her mother, I got. And the, resent- and, and the resentments and jealousy came from my mom to this day. People don't believe me because we always laugh it off. We always looked apart. But both of us were very broken coming up. And so as I got older, I would just go out with men that would take care of me. I would travel. I didn't care how they spoke to me. My thing was image. Let me make sure I looked apart so no one would know that I was hurting. 
I started using cocaine here in Connecticut when I was teaching school. So I left in 85, I went to Atlanta, and that's when the physical abuse started. I really believe it didn't start in Connecticut because my family and friends were here. So if anything happened, I would have someone to go to. But I met a gentleman in Atlanta. I was teaching school, I was substitute teaching. I was working at a check cashing place. Um, a friend of mine from Connecticut uh, told me I could stay with him, so I found a place. But he, a good friend, and it's like a brother, he sexually assaulted me twice, so oh. I packed up and went to a shelter, you know, for help. In the meantime, I always worked. So I had two jobs, and I got a third job working um, in the ghetto, if you will, um, and I met a young man of the streets. He was very powerful, had a lot of money, had the flashy cars, and so that was my ticket. We started dating. I started working for him. He got me an apartment, you know, and everything was good, but he was extremely physical abusive. I didn't have any family or friends, so I took the abuse. I was afraid because he was very powerful. And he would beat me up and then make love to me, and I would sleep in the closet. Um, I was just broken. I didn't understand why. How could I be so pretty and people didn't like me or why they always picked on me or someone always had something to say. But I held it all in, um, and I took the abuse because if he slapped me or punched me, I got a Louis Vuitton bag. I was able to go to Italy. I could shop, and I was just really sick. I didn't realize it, but I was really a sick young lady trying to survive the best way I could. It wasn't until he beat me and threw me out the car, started kicking me in my stomach like I was trash. And it was like an Ike and Tina Turner uh, segment, brought me in the house, he had me shower, I went to sleep. I got home, I mean he got home and I had all these gifts and he had love you, the flowers, and that's when I started to learn about the cycle. Again, Afraid to say anything or call the police, I dealt with it for a while. It wasn't until uh, the police were looking for him, um, actually a GBI, and they came to my place. They didn't, I didn't have any part, uh, drugs or anything in there, but because I didn't say anything, they locked me up. <sighs> I, had, I had initially cashed some money orders for some friends of his. I didn't know they were stolen, so I had that charge as well. I went to jail for two weeks, and I think that's when I started to grow up and understand what domestic violence was all about. A chaplain literally saved my life in 1988 when she said, you know, a lot of women don't understand what love is. And it just hit a nerve with me, and all I could do was cry. You know, my parents, you know, they did the best they could with the material, but not hearing it and not getting a hug from the people you want like my grandmother did it, but my mom didn't, and that was a big issue for me. Nevertheless, in jail, I grew up. Um, I was no longer spoiled, no one knew me, I wasn't popular, I was an inmate. But at that time, I attended classes with the chaplain, and she started to allow me, or teach us how to peel the layers, mm. how to really deal with the inner soul, how to deal with your spirit, take it back to childhood, and so that's what I did. I was so broken. I'm like, wow, I'm really messed up. So I continued on, they released me. And by the grace of God, one of the gentlemen that used to work for the guy, who's also a, a drug dealer, <clears throat> uh, said, you know, they need teachers in St. Croix. That's where I'm from. You know, we were just good friends. Why don't you come with me? 
And I'm like, you know, let me just get my life together. So that was 1989. I went over to St. Croix, the Virgin Islands. I taught school in third grade at St. Dunstan's. I started out as a sub. But because all the stateside teachers had left the island, I had a really good chance of getting a full-time job, in which I did. Things were fine for the first two years. Me and this guy were just friends. No intimacy, nothing, just friends. He had his friends. I had mine. His sister allowed me to stay with her until the teacher's quarters was ready. And then we started dating for some reason. We just started hanging out, started having sex, and then he started getting jealous. Mm. The first time, you know, he slapped me around, you know, I would just fight him back and then we would make up, you know, but then it got to be where the public humiliation and embarrassment came with the verbal. Again, I'm here on an island now, um, no friends, no family. But I said, let me just take this, let me do what I need to do, whatever he needs from me. And so my out the sex, you know, anytime he wanted to fight me, I would just, you know, really, really just try to be intimate with him to have him leave me alone because I, I didn't know anything else. Right. Things were good. Third grade class was wonderful. Um, I lived at an apartment right across from the school, right near the water. You know, life was really good. He uh, was showing some jealousy, but it wasn't physical as much as I had experienced prior to. One day I had early arrival in St. Croix, and uh, I mean the school St. Dunstan's, I'm sorry. And so that means that you go in the hour early, so there's no administrators and no one there. It's just like three or four teachers. We all rotate it for our kids to come in early. He was across the street. Next one I know, he's outside my classroom. Now my classroom was surrounded with windows all on one side, so you could see people in and out. And he's just standing there watching me. So I'm talking to my four students, you know, we're just saying, did you do your homework? The usual conversation, you know, how was your day? How was your night mm -hmm. yesterday? Well, you know, and he just comes in and starts beating me up, throws me on the floor <laughs> and starts beating me up and says, Every, you don't have time for me. Everything's about these effing kids. And I'm screaming, like, get off me, get off me. My four students, I think it was three or four students. I remember Siobhan Romney, Dwayne Dickerson, and the principal's son, um, I know his last name was Terrell. Started I'm sorry, sorry. That's okay. Started throwing <laughs> books and erasers at him saying, leave me the goings alone. And I'm sitting there. Now, prior to that, when I was in college, I lost a son at five months. Mm. And I was in the psych board. I, you know, I really snapped because I, I wanted to you know, be a mother. But I remember being on that floor being beaten. And I said, you know what? I couldn't save my son, but he's not going to hurt my students. And so I started fighting back. And my kids would throw books and erasers. So one of the kids, Dwayne Dickerson, who I'm trying to find, um, went and got one of the upperclassmen that played basketball. They say it was Tim Duncan, the NBA player, because he attended school at that time with one of his classmates. But the young man came and pulled the guy off me, and I started fighting. He held him down, called the police. And the kids were fine. They didn't cry. They weren't traumatized. They just held me. And I know, and I said to myself, I don't care how long it takes. I, after this, I'm going to do a presentation for either Ellen, Tyler Perry, Oprah, or somebody to find my students so I can, you know, acknowledge them. They were eight and nine years old, and they were so brave. They were braver than me. And so all said and done, they said that I could not come back to teach because I had risked you know, risk right. of injury to minors. And it was a private school run by Hess, so... The good thing is that um, prior to him, you know, verbally abusing me, I started reading up on domestic violence, the cycles, 
the honeymoon phase, what have you. So they had an organization that literally saved my life, the Women's Coalition. I'm still in touch with them after 30 years. They nurtured, they nurtured me back to health. I had Clemma Lewis, who was an assistant director, Mary Mingus, who I'll never forget. And then I had a rehab counselor, uh, Carol Scott, who has passed now, but she was like a mother to me. I actually called her my godmother, and she allowed me to come to her house. And she took me in, and she took care of me, but she let me have it. And she taught me, taught, taught me about, you know, knowing your worth, being a black woman in America, you know, you can't allow this. She didn't beat me up, but she let me have it in a sense out of love. And she nurtured me. And I'm like, wow, I'm really broken. So she, you know, had me start from age five. The sexual assaults, you know, when I was assaulted by one of my mom's friends. And he didn't penetrate, but he assault, sexually assaulted me enough where I told my mom, and she says, well, stop being grown. Or she didn't believe me, so. But I told my stepdad, and he beat the man up immediately. All I saw was blood and the police. Oh, my when I'm telling my godmother, Miss Scott, you know, I don't like my mom. She buys me all the nice clothes. I had Louis Vuitton bags. I had the best of everything. But she never really embraced me as her daughter like I wanted, like she did my sister. And so I grew up with this resentment. And I don't know if following, you know, finding these type of men was a way of getting back. You know, they say it's a part of trying to get attention. But I wanted her love so bad that, you know, I just did a lot that I shouldn't have. But I didn't know what else to do. When I went into rehab, because I started, you know, doing cocaine again, we had a family therapy via telephone, because back then they didn't have what we have now. At 32 years old, my mom told me she loved me. And wow, wow. 32. I'm 65 wow. now. So my therapist, Miss Scott, said, this is what you needed. And so my mom talked about, you know, having tuberculosis, being outcast in her family, being her and my Aunt Claudine, never involved in any activities with her siblings because, you know, being Portuguese um, and uh, West Indian, you know, it's like, and then back then it was like having a plague. So, you know, they weren't included a lot. They weren't loved as much. And so they grew up broken and bruised as well. And I guess it just carried on. So the love my mother didn't get from her mother, she didn't give to me, but her mother did. So, but moving forward, you know, when I was in the Virgin Islands, I stayed six years. I survived two hurricanes, and I started working for the Women's Coalition. Then I worked at night as a hotline counselor because I wanted to let women know, you know, we need to heal. Yes. We need to tell our stories. Um, you know, black community, women, we don't talk. You know, you can't tell what happened. You know, you don't want to be marked or embarrassed or ashamed. So I stayed, you know, Virgin Islands six years, Women's Coalition, doing work with them doing the walks, you know, doing whatever I had to do to grow and to continue to heal myself. I moved back to Connecticut in 2000, and I joined the church, Wayfaring Ministries, and I started a mentoring group. And I'm a retired high school teacher, so I always worked with young women for years. I started the mentoring group because a lot of my girls were coming to me with all of this brokenness, whether it be with their mom, their dad, you know, boyfriend, school, just society, just trying to grow as a young teenager. So I started my sister's innovative mentoring group, and I mentored girls up until age 25. I still have two of those girls to this day. They're both 32. <laughs> but <laughs> it's um, awesome. I started to do the work again, but in Connecticut, I couldn't tell anybody what I was going through. I still held it in. I, one's coalition helped me 
And everyone knew, oh, that's the teacher that got beaten up, but I couldn't come home and tell anyone because I was too ashamed. Mm. You know, my family was very popular. Everybody knew me. So even now, people are like, well, Cheryl, you went to jail? You were beaten? Oh, yeah. I just covered it up very well. But today, I tell women, know your worth, love yourself. Peel those layers off. You know, we'll heal together. We are our sister's keeper, and so that's what I do. I started my sister's circle five years ago because people kept asking me, Cheryl, you know, you got to tell your story. I said, I'm not a speaker. You know, I'll speak in front of the class, but I don't speak in front of people. But I didn't know the importance. I didn't know the need for all of us yes, to yes. with each other and help people. And how many women are so broken and bruised out there? How many women that need us? How many women need to see an example? So I started the uh, conference calls on Monday from 6 to 8, and now I'm doing Clubhouse on Thursdays from 6 to 8. I took a month off because I now run a shelter, and I really just wanted to regroup. But starting this Thursday, I'll resume my you know services under my sister circle I'm now an INC awaiting my 501c you know and so we do things in the community hygiene products I work at a group home also a safe home for women I do mentoring I consult now I go to group homes and I talk to women I'm trying to get in the prisons now and talk to women so as they transition in the community they'll be, they'll be prepared with some tools um, but it's it's just a lot of work and it's the numbers are going up Yes, you know, yes. legislation and policy, you know, things aren't changing fast enough for us. We just buried a 37-year-old here in Connecticut Thursday. Um, her boyfriend shot her in the back and killed her, and her kids jumped out the window for safety. And college educated and everything, but again, you know, I tell women all the time, you know, these men are broken and bruised as well. And they need some support as well. There's a lot of bruised young men out here. And the numbers for domestic violence continue to rise because no one's educating these men. So I'm proposing to go into prisons. And I want to speak to the men as well. I want, you know, some other men, male groups to join me. So now I'm trying to collaborate some friends of mine, my cousin, to get the message out because it's, it's just sad. And it is hurt, it's hurtful. But every day I pray and I get up and I say I have to keep, you know, helping. I have a young lady now. Five relationships, all abusive. She's only 30 years old. Mm. And she's in the shelter, back and forth. Every time she meets someone, it doesn't work. She runs and we rescue her. You know, so we're trying to get her to heal, to know her worth and learn to love yourself. And knowing that if you're alone, it's okay. You know, yes. learn to just love you. You know, I date myself. <laughs> I, I go to movies, I go shopping, people, I go to dinner now, I take trips to New York alone, I've been to several plays, and it's not as lonely as people think when you yeah. know who you are. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma Thank you, you for that. Yeah, so it's important, and that's my message. Learn to love yourself and know your worth. I have my uh, annual uh, luncheon coming up in October, and it's a uh, love yourself brunch for women surviving domestic violence, mental health, or sexual assault. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Do you have a link for that? Maybe I could drop that down there later. I will send it to you May 1st. We are going to be, you know, putting a flyer up. I'm okay. waiting for my event planner to register us for Eventbrite. But all the information, you know, I post all the time. I'll yes, make sure you yes. get everything you need. Oh, thank you. I just want to hug your little self. I, I just want to hug you. I know, because I'm definitely a walking miracle. Yes, ma'am, you are.
Yes, definitely yes, God's, definitely warrior. God's warrior. Oh, yeah, absolutely. By his grace and mercy, that's why I'm here. Yes. And if you hear, uh, if you're listening to the, to the podcast, podcast and you hear sniffling, that's me. I'm just crying over you. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. I didn't want okay. to make you upset. I just wanted to tell my story so maybe it can help someone, you know, let them know they're not alone. Well, you know, listening to survivor stories reminds me, just like you said, it reminds me I'm not alone. Hearing what you said about sex, and that's something that I did as a coping mechanism or defense mechanism. Anytime that there was a confrontation, maybe physical, I would drop to my knees or whatever I had to do in order to de-escalate. Absolutely. And that's the word, de-escalate. I would just sit in the closet, just, you know, cry. And he would just say, you all right? And it's fun. It's not funny, but to this day, um, the gentleman that abused me in the classroom, uh, his family reaches out to me. He committed suicide. He committed suicide. He had another relationship after me, and the girl beat him up really bad. He's never experienced that before. I shouldn't laugh, shouldn't but, laugh but I know. But he never. And his mother said, you know, and his and his sister, you know, they asked me because they see me on social media and they respond. And they said, I wish you would have told us. I said, well, I thought you all knew because a few times he beat me up at his sister's house. They just didn't get involved. Yeah, so the girl beat him up really bad and left him. And uh, he wound up shooting himself in the head. So he was broken. And I'm saying to myself, can you imagine if, you know, it was the other way around and he killed me or killed her? But he wound up killing himself. Right, right. And I'm glad you mentioned about these broken men. men. I do have men that do reach out from time to time that are actually victims of abuse. They're partners being abusive, too. But yes, we have that cycle where these men may become victims because they grew up in that toxic household as well. The gentleman that I had the first abuse in Atlanta you know, when I got out of jail and I and I spoke with him, he says, are you leaving? I said, yes. And I asked him, I said, why did you feel that I had to be? He says, because I watched my dad beat my mom and I thought that was what I was supposed to do. I said, yeah, but you could have killed me, you know. And see, he gave me, you know, he gave me money. He said, I wish you the best. He did apologize, but he was just so broken himself. And I just had to go. Well, let me ask you this then. Do you, did you ever find forgiveness for any of these men? Yes. I and how was that for you? Tough. You know, because I'm like, no, no, no. But the more I didn't want to forgive, the more I couldn't heal or grow because I kept holding on to it. Ooh. And my therapist, Carol Scott, oh, I miss her terribly. She said, well, you're just going to be stuck. She said, I want you to speak around the world, tell your story, but I want you to heal first and I want you to forgive. It's not for you, it's for them. Well, it's not for them, it's for you. Uh, I'm sorry. And I was like, really? You know, I didn't get, so I read up on it and how people, and I hear it all the time, you know, you must forgive. I'm just forgiving my mother. She's a trigger for me, but I just said, Lord, I have to forgive her. Well, I'm glad you're sharing that because it's not like it's right away. This could be a matter of steps that you take, that could take years. I just spoke with my mom two weeks ago. And she says, I don't know why you're so shut down. I says, because I don't want to be around the negative. You know, you never have anything good to say. You're 85 years old. All your siblings are gone. You're still here. I just wish you'd be a lot more happier. And she said, well, you know, you know, I'm doing the best I can. But, you know, sometimes you just, I don't really care for you too well. I said, I know you don't like me, Mom. I said, but God said, I have to love you. 
Hey, let me go get your medicine. Let me go get what you need. You want to go eat? That's tough for me. But I do it because as God said I had to love your parents. Honor your mother and father. So thank God I had an aunt. Yeah, my mom's sister, that was my that was like my second mother. I always, you know, was with her mo most of the time in my life, opposed to my mom. I always wanted to stay at her house. I always wanted to be with her. Even when I got married, my mom didn't come. And when I, I was heavier, and I showed her my uh, wedding picture, she says, oh, you look like a tent. <laughs> I said, yeah, but I'm a beautiful tent, you know, so I learned how to. <laughs> she didn't like my husband at first. I mean, yeah, she really was resentful. And every now and then I still see it, but I can deal with it now. I can deal with it now, so. I tell women all the time, just, Know your worth, know your triggers, you know, surround yourself with people that are, you know, like-minded. Yes. Um, and just stay away from the negativity. Yes. Yeah. yes. And that can be hard for somebody. So you know, what does that look like for that realization and healing? Just um, well, I, guess, I, church, I go to church. Um, I stay to myself a lot. I try to really, you know, I let like three or four women in my life go because they were toxic or dating married men or doing things that just don't, approve of. I read a lot and I work. I retired, but I came out of retirement and now I work at a safe house and I love it. I you sound a, very sound busy. Very busy. Yeah, I, I try. I mean, it's just me. I don't have any pets. I'm not married anymore. I'm not dating. Um, it's just me. So I try to stay busy but with things that I enjoy. And one thing I enjoy is working with my young women. I have an office, but I it was a living room, but I made it out of an office so they can come in and I'm always there for them. And it's so rewarding because someone did it for me. And so I'm just giving back and being an example. The first time in my entire life I can say I absolutely love my job. I mean, I enjoy teaching. I enjoy working as a mental health clinician. I enjoy doing chaplaincy. But working at this safe house and watching these women grow and heal and nurture, you know, nurture themselves back to life and just, oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. And you could tell you're, could just, tell, you're beaming. just beaming. Yeah, because I know, I remember when it was me. And I always tell them, because the CEO says, well, you know, you don't have to disclose. I said, yes, I do. I have to let them know. I used to live in a shelter just like this. I came in with the clothes in my back. And that's important, that's important. because yes. when, they when they see you, you may be smiling, smiling and you're and put, you're together, put together. And, and I would have I never, would guessed never guessed you are a survivor, survivor of so much. So much. My girlfriend, Michelle Turner, 40 years, she just cried when she interviewed me. She has a, a, her own podcast as well. She says, Cheryl, I didn't know you were going through it. I says, I didn't want you to know. <coughs> the cover-up, you know how we cover up very well. Right. So I appreciate you having me, allowing me to tell my story. Hopefully I can get you on Clubhouse. I'm not at the podcast level yet. I'm still learning all this technology, but I just really appreciate women that just know their worth and know their, and tell their stories. It's yes. needed. It's very needed. So It is. It is. And I always and I said always that said if you just share, share even with your, your friend, friend mm -hmm. or a family member that, that might, not might not know, know. it's so mm -hmm. important. Very important. We have to keep telling our stories. We yes. have to heal together. You know, just know that we're not alone. That's my favorite slogan. You're not never alone. So, you okay? <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> and as sharing survivor stories is just so, so, very, so, um, it's very strong. Uh, it reminds me a lot of what I went through. 
and uh, I'm, I have a lot of empathy. I'm very empathic, so it usually comes out when I'm on video. I always have tissue on hand because I don't think there's a lot of shows that I've done that I haven't cried. I cry all the time, especially for the young women. I just weep. Thursday, I was a mess. Friday, I was a mess. But, you know, you have to keep doing the work. Excuse me. Yes, yes, and thank you and for thank all you, you do. And it is and it powerful. Is powerful. I, just I just came on Tuesday. I went to our local shelter. shelter. I do go up there and share my story. And it's so powerful and such a reminder. It really rocks me back to those early days when I first left. And I was that victim housed there. Yes, just a reminder. But it is very powerful when we start sharing. And that's awesome, Melinda, because we have to stay reminded. Because yes. I started dating someone, when I start seeing the cycles, I was like, okay, you know what, this is not going to work. And that had the, that constant reminder of, you know, what happened. People say, oh, don't hold on to it. It's not holding on, it's like putting it on pause. Yes. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's what I say. I put it on pause in case, you know, I see the same behavior in someone else. I'm just not going to put myself through this anymore. Traumatizing. This is one of the most traumatizing experiences I've ever had. Draining. draining. It's and draining it's, it's, emotionally, physical, spiritually, mentally, financially. It is. Yes. It is. Yes. It really is. So where are you located again? I can't I'm in Indiana. Okay. I don't know why I said Canada. <laughs> My cousin called me yesterday for the link, and she's like, "Is it Canada?" I said, "I think so." <laughs> it's the accent. It's the accent. <laughs> uh, do you do any? Uh, conferences or workshops in Indiana for domestic violence? Um, I am trying to do my own, to do my own like, um, like um, retreat, retreat, if you want to call that. I'm trying, trying to get that up and running. Nice. Let me know. Yes, yes I would. I, I love retreats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This Thank has you. been a pleasure. pleasure. It's been it's beautiful. And beautiful. You are most are welcome. welcome. Okay. So, if you're, so if you're listening, if you're out, you're there, out there, this resonates, this resonates with you, please share, share some love, love, share this video. video. There'll be the podcast link a little bit later, but find her links in the comment section. Thank you so much for watching, and Cheryl, thanks again for being here. Thank you. You take care and stay strong, stay encouraged, and love yourself. <laughs> yes, amen. Amen. All right, bye-bye. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.